You're listening to the Sunday podcast from LifePoint Church in Santan Valley, Arizona. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. If you have the communion, let's partake of that now. Before we partake of communion, I encourage you to take a moment and spend some time with the Lord. For me, every Sunday, why I love communion is because it forces me to take all of the noise of the week, and there's a lot of noise going on right now, isn't there? To take all the noise of the week and to put it in submission to the Lord. Literally. My fears, the concerns of the, my work, the concerns of relationship, the concerns of the economy and our country. And I say, Lord, I submit this to you. Because if I don't, it overtakes me. It becomes too much. And so I encourage you now as we prepare our hearts to seek the Lord, to, to let Him search your heart. Go ahead. nearly 2,000 years since Christ shook my mic up there nearly 2,000 years that the church has been remembering together when they're gathered to partake of the body and the blood of Christ as we remember the work of the cross as we remember that our strength and the source of our joy come from him Philippians 5 says, Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient, even to the point of death on a cross. What we celebrate here now is that submission, that holiness, that righteousness. And so if you have the bread with you, I'm going to pray and bless it, and then we'll partake together. Heavenly Father, we partake of the bread now, which you said as you held up, this is my body, that we would remember whenever we were together, and whenever we ate of the bread, the sacrifice of the cross, and the source of our strength and our righteousness is you, Lord Jesus. So we bless this bread now. Jesus name. Amen. In a similar manner after they had eaten, he took up the cup and he told them, this is my blood that is to be poured out for the forgiveness of sin. Let's pray. Father, in the same manner, Lord, without the blood of Jesus Christ, without the sacrifice, without the atonement, could not be here today celebrating the gift of the Holy Spirit, celebrating the work of righteousness that has been given to us on the behalf of Jesus. So we thank you for the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, and we bless this juice now in that name. Amen.
It is the end of June, and we are starting a new series here that will last the next few weeks, maybe through July. The music's just going to keep playing. Oh, okay. I love our sound guy. I don't give them enough harassment. Yeah, I'm going to give you a lot more. Um, Welcome, welcome. We're starting a new series in the book of Philippians. In your Bible, if you have a Bible, go ahead, pull it out, grab your digital Bible, or there should be one underneath the seat in front of you if you don't have one. But grab your Bible, make sure I'm not making things up. I do occasionally do that, so keep me honest. Philippians, we're going to be in chapter 2, chapter 2. And uh, this, this whole series is born out of an idea of identity of who we are as a church. And in the midst of this time, we're asking ourselves who we are as a country, who we are as people in the midst of just great disunity in our country. And then as as not just people of America, as Americans, we are also Christians inside of that. And so what does that mean? And this question came to me this week, and it's come to me often, uh, especially when I first came out here almost seven years ago. What does it mean to be a non-denominational church? What does it mean? Not the literal definition. The literal definition is in the name. We are not part of any denomination. We are therefore sans denomination or non-denominational. But what does it mean to be a non-denominational church? Where do we take stands? What do we take stands on? What do we believe? I mean, we're a Christian church, so there's an assumption there that we believe in a Trinitarian God and this atonement of Jesus Christ and the sanctification and the justification that comes through His death, burial, and resurrection, right? Those are some of the foundations and the virgin birth. And you can go back and we did a series on the Apostles' Creed that those are foundational, fundamental parts of the faith that a Christian church should believe if you're going to be a church that follows after Christ and is a discipleship church. But the thing for me, really, and this has been the tension, and I'm going to use that word a lot today, but this has been the tension that you have to maintain when you are leading a church that is not part of a denomination. You see, if we were part of a denomination, I could go to the denomination's handbook, and it will tell me exactly what to believe, and exactly what to do, and exactly what is allowed and what is not allowed, because the handbook has told me so. When you say we're not part of a denomination, you're saying, I'm going to operate in this middle place of grace and truth. And I believe this is exactly where Jesus operated. In fact, I know it's where he operated, was in the middle between grace and truth. You see, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they operated in truth. It was their way or the highway. It was the law of God plus some extra rules, just a few hundred. And the extra rules were there so they could teach you and keep you in line. So if you messed up and tried to say, yeah, but, they'd say, we have a subsection for that. You still broke the rule. Here is your penalty. Take your penalty and don't do it again. You see, that's one way to do life. Follow the law to the letter of the law. And if you mess up, you will pay the penalty. And then Christ comes in and He seems to be really nice to people who are breaking the law. He seems to show something called grace to them because he understands 
the greater event that is going on. He understands why he's here and what he's doing. He doesn't reject the law. In fact, he says, I am fulfilling the law. And we see brought to him murderers and thieves and prostitutes. And he almost sort of pardons them. The law said that they should be punished for what they have done. And he extends this grace and even to one says, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. How do we balance that? How are we supposed to know how to act as men and women of God in this time when it seems like, I don't know, inconsistent? And that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about this idea of tension, non-denominational church. That's what we are. We're a non-denominational church. That's what it was before I came out here, but I remember when I came out here, there's just sort of this thought of, God, okay, you've given this to me. I didn't want it. I didn't seek it out. You have laid it open, and, and I am here, and I will serve. And, but what, what kind of a church should we be? What, you know? In fact, I actually looked it up. Oh, I don't have my phone with me. Uh, Mesa Community College was the top thing on Google. How many uh, denominations are in Arizona, Christian denominations? Over 200. Over 200. You've got the Adventist, Catholics. They actually include Mormons, the Nazarenes, the Mennonites, the Quakers, the Evangelicals, the Pentecostals. Of course, my favorite, the Baptists. The, uh, you can keep going. It went from A all the way to Z of all of the denominations that are out there, and then the sub-denominations that are under those denominations. And there was no non-denominational in the non-denominations. Isn't that weird? I thought we'd be under there, under non. Non-denominational. But inside of non-denominational, there, there, there exists this tension, and Tara said it when it came to diversity, is we have people from every different background in our church. If you, if you go to a church that is historically Baptist or Nazarene or Lutheran, or Pentecostal, you will find people who typically grew up in that faith and have generations been in that faith. Whereas I know here we are a mutt of mutts. We've got your Catholics, your atheists, your Orthodox. Do I have any Reformed people in here? Right? We've got the Reformed any sinners? There we go. Okay. That's what I want. Yeah, we got lots of those. We got lots of sinners. And so, because of that, there's going to be tension in how we lead as a church. What do we allow? What do we not allow? What, what is right? What is good? What, what is the stuff that should be there and what is the stuff that shouldn't? What is part of our own prejudice and predisposition and what is actually not of God? You see the tension that I'm talking about? This has been the tension that I've dealt with for seven years. And it is difficult. It's incredibly difficult to manage this line that there is grace given, but then there is also truth that must be established and upheld. Um, one of the things I want to say is I know a few weeks ago on the 7th, we had one of our uh, gentlemen who is a leader here speak. And he talked about and sort of affirmed a couple of preachers that have come to my attention. And I just want to say that uh, Jerry 
is a man who I love and Wilma have supported Christy and I, and I love them to death. And this is a man who we have many people here at this church because of him and his ministry and the way he loves people and loves his neighbors. But he comes from a more charismatic background. I come from, I grew up in Baptist, Nazarene, and more Reformed backgrounds. And then as I got older, was in a non-denominational church for a little over a decade. And so we differ and we disagree on things. Now, the core, the tenets, we agree. The Apostles' Creed, all of those things, we agree on that 100%. But we disagree on some of the other things. Some of them, I believe, are vital, and some of them are not. But he did mention some men and some names, and so there's been questions. I've received quite a bit of emails, or other pastors have. Are these men that we affirm as a church, men like Kenneth Copeland or Benny Hinn? And they're not. These are not men that we are in line with. These are not men. Now, I'm not going to speak evil of them. I'm not in relationship with them. I will let their own actions speak for themselves. But they're not men that we're in alignment with. Now, we've, uh, the other pastors had a chance to sit down and talk with Jerry. We love Jerry. Jerry is still an amazing man of God and, and an incredible evangel- uh, evangelist of the gospel. But this is just a place where I wanted to be clear because there's just been a lot of questions. Are these guys that we affirm and we don't? You see, tension. Tension. In a non-denominational church, there's going to be tension. If we were charismatic, there wouldn't be a lot of tension. We would already know who we believe and who we don't. If we were Reformed or Orthodox, we would know. Lutheran, you definitely know. Calvinist, oh yeah, super no. So here is the LifePoint mission and vision. Does anybody know the mission statement of LifePoint? Stacy, would you come up here and give it, please? No, okay. (laughs) Our mission is to help people become fully devoted followers of Christ through intentionally serving, giving, and caring for our neighbor. That is our mission. Amongst anything else that we're doing, that everything we do, every program, every lesson, everybody, anybody we hire, any event that we have going on, must fall in line with that mission. Does this event help people become fully devoted followers of Christ by intentionally serving, giving, and caring for our neighbor? And who is our neighbor? Who is our neighbor? Everybody. Thank you. See, we can be a little more interactive with the smaller crowds, okay? Everybody. The Bible teaches us that. The Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan, it's not just those whose homes border our property. It's everybody. They're our neighbor. So how do we carry that out? Well, you carry it out through a vision, and this is the vision of LifePoint, to help you develop your full potential in Christ while we continue to start new ministries and release leaders to fulfill their God-given destinies. You see, how we accomplish the first is by creating disciples and then teaching and training so that as God puts ministries on your heart, as he puts passions in your soul, our goal is to equip you, not just to send another pastor to go do it, but to send you. And we've seen that in seven years, one of my most proud uh, aspects of what we've done here are the people who are leading ministries and heading things up that used to just be people who came and sat here on Sunday. We've got the person who leads the Genesis Project, the homeless shelter in Apache Junction, Trinity Cole, somebody who just came, helped with our children, never did a mission in her life, was one of those people who said, no way, not me. 
started serving over there, started serving every once a month, started serving multiple times a month, and now she's the head of the chair, the, the board over there. We've got so many stories like that. I could just keep going of people who came and who our goal is to help train, support, and equip them for the work of ministry. So that's the mission and the vision of LifePoint and how we carry it out is through the pastorship and the leadership that are here. We help organize a church and a community of people, not only to uplift those in the neighborhood and those who don't know Christ and those who do know Christ and provide support, but to also be a a place where instruction is given that can be uh, founded in Jesus Christ and is the foundation and the truth of everything. So that way when you receive instruction, you don't have to question what you received. Now this is easier said than done, I promise. I've been doing it. How do we accomplish these things? Well, anytime you come to a church, there's going to be changes and it's going to take, it's like moving a big ship. When I first came here, there were lots of things that I saw that I thought, okay, we could do this differently, but I didn't just jump in and do them. If you do that, you're a fool. You must take time, you must get to know the people. You must have relationship with people, right? And so let me just share with you, how many people have been here since I got here? Okay, so you can see around a few of us here. When I first got here, we, we had Santa come in December. We had the Easter Bunny come in April. And we, we watched movies here on Sunday morning, and I built a sermon around it in September called Life Point at the Movies. These were things that were already going on, and I inherited them, and we continued to do them. Now, as we changed the mission and the vision of LifePoint, and that wasn't me, it was the pastors and the elders at the time, we had to begin to look at things and say, does this qualify as something that is meeting our mission and vision? And so we decided it wasn't. And slowly, one by one, we killed Santa. (laughs) We took the Easter bunny to the shutout back. Yeah. And we shut down the movies. All events, we begin to change the way we did events, right? Our men's events, our couples' events, our women's events, mom's events, cater them around outreach and ministry. We wanted them to be not just an event for something to do, but that it would be something that that continued to make disciples out of those who were going and helped others in our community. So we changed the kind of events we did. I changed my teaching. My teaching, I don't know if you noticed it, I did it real slow so no one would yell at me. But when I first got here, it was topic-driven, right? Whatever the topic was, and I look back at those first ones. And now, if you've been here for any amount of time, my preaching's more exegetical. I go through entire uh, books of the Bible. I break it down verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And there was purpose behind that. The purpose behind it is I don't just want you to understand the moral virtues of the Bible and good lessons. I want you to understand the scriptures themselves. I want you to know that when you go to Philippians, the life lessons and what God is showing you, that you could pull it straight out of the scripture without needing to go to a specific series. Now, I'm not bashing anyone else who preaches another way. This is just the way for us that I have felt led to lead. This is the tension, right? Because there are people who who would like me to return to series. They like the series. So there's tension. It's going to create tension. We've increased classes and educational learning. We've increased focus on missions locally and abroad. Big time on that one. That's the center of everything we do. 
as our local missions and those overseas. And we've improved educating and empowering congregants to take the lead in ministries. This is just some of what it means at LifePoint to be a non-denominational church. This is some of the, the core basics of who we are. This is the tenets of what make us who we are. So I, I want to now jump in to Philippians 2. And I want you to see here that as Paul is writing to this church in Philippi, this is sort of Paul's favorite church. You're not supposed to have favorites when you're a church planner, but Paul had a favorite, and it was the Philippians. If you look at the letter, you'll see it is tender. You'll see he just he is doting on them. He loves them. He is so proud of what they have done. They are the church with the least problems, <laughs> and you can see that from the letter. But they still do have a problem, and he's going to address it here. But I want you to see this. So even the best church, even the best of the best that had the absolute best pastor, even they have some major problems. Chapter 2, verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from His love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then would you make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being in one spirit and purpose, would you do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit? But in humility, would you consider others better than yourself? Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Be of one mind, and one spirit. Listen, Philippians, there is a great spirit of disunity growing amongst you. There is a spirit of dissent. And I want to explain the difference between those two. Because sometimes, it, well, those are the same things, disunity and dissent. Disunity is what happens when dissension comes in. Dissension is the purposeful act of breaking up whatever the unity is. If you're coming into dissent, if you're a dissenter, you're wanting to break up any unity that exists. And so when we see disunity, usually there is also a spirit of dissension. There is something coming in that says, you know what, this is a great place and I really like it, but here's some things we can do to make it better. Don't you think? Don't you think we could be a better church, a better place that honors Jesus if we just did these things? These are the things that would really, really make us better. Have you talked with the leaders about it? No. But I know God has shown me personally, and this is what would happen. This didn't just happen in Philippi. This happened in all of the churches. People would come in, and we bring our own prejudices and predispositions into the church and we say, here, you've got a great thing going on, but allow me to just make it a little bit better for you. And often, often that brings disunity and dissension. Now, it's absolutely critical that we understand that this passage is teaching us and telling us the answer to one of the greatest problems we have as humans. And it's actually all religions, all philosophies and ideologies would agree on this problem. You ready for it? It's going to be mind-blowing. Humans like to fight. Don't we? Even if you don't like fighting, you still do it. Are you married? 
You fight. You have kids? You better, oh yeah, you definitely fight. <laughs> you fight, and we kind of like fighting. We hurt each other. We don't get along with each other. Why? Because we're not educated enough? Is that what it is? It's just education? No, we know that's not what it is. We have tried educating people for decades, millennia, centuries. It doesn't matter. We still fight with each other. You see, I'm a pastor, and I have gone through so many marriage classes and studies and how to have the best marriage, and blah, 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 and I still fight with her all the time. And sometimes she's right, and that's what's crazy. I'm like, what? Sometimes. See, it doesn't matter. It's not about education. I have all the education in the world. No, the fact of the matter is this, that when you are in the middle of the fight, nothing else matters. And when you are outside the fight, the answer to no more fighting is so simple, isn't it? You ever have a couple or friends, two friends come to you and they're sharing their argument with you and you go, oh my gosh, it's so easy, just stop. I mean, it's so obvious, you see it, right? You're acting like a jerk and you need to just give it back to them. There, done. That's why I'm not a good marriage counselor because that's how I attack people who bring problems to me and they're just looking at me. No, I'm kidding, but I'm not. So... You can't do that, though, because when you're on the outside of the fight, when you don't have a dog in the fight, the answer is so simple. But when you are inside the fight, it is more than just, why, Nathan, and I'm going to quote her verbatim, do you take your clothes and put them on top of the hamper? When all it takes is lifting the lid and putting them inside the hamper. (laughs) To which I say, dear wife, Because when it's on top of the hamper, I may wear it again. But once it goes inside, it is filthy and dirty and no. Because I don't know what's in that hamper. Underwear goes in there. And I don't know what side is facing out. So once it goes in, it's done. That's why it stays on the top. You know what? It's so funny because this is just an example of one of a million things we fight about as couples. It's things that don't actually matter, but then what happens is if it becomes a big enough problem, it explodes, and it becomes less about the actual hamper and the clothes, and it becomes more about respect and love. You don't respect me, you don't love me. And the person on the outside says it's so simple, I can see how to fix your problem, but what's happening on the inside is we have taken the problem, and it has now become personal to each of us. And my way, my thought process, my reasoning is more logical and is more right than yours. Well, Paul has something to say to us on this as well. Romans 12, 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. Could you imagine if you were in the middle of a fight with your spouse or your kids and your phone could sense your voice level was raising and all of a sudden you just got a ding and Romans 12, 3 came up? Remember, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Rather, with sober judgment, have faith. Well, God didn't give me much faith, so I'm going to continue to fight, right? That's not how you're supposed to look at that verse, by the way. When you are seeking after truth, when you are seeking after things in life that matter, that, that, that are substantial, 
This verse should be what goes before you in all of it. Be sober-minded. You should not think so highly of yourself. Have a sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. You see, as a non-denominational church that operates in the tension, two sides that say, this is how we worship God, no, this is how we worship God, and non-denominational says, no, we're going to operate in the tension. And we're going to do this intentionally because I believe this is what God has called us to do. I don't believe He's called us to solve the tension. He's called us to work and love one another and worship together in the tension. And that's really what marriage is all about. The truth is you're never going to solve the tension. In marriage, there's always going to be something. You are two different people with two different wills and minds and souls. And no matter how long you are together and how much you start to look like each other, the longer you're together, the tension is still there. It's a palpable tension. It, it shouldn't be solved. It should be embraced. Same thing goes with Christ. You see, Jesus called his followers, not Christians, not Baptists, not Orthodox, not Episcopals, Angelicans, Anglicans. Or... What did he call them? Do you know? Disciples. By this, John 13, by this everyone will know that you're my disciples. If you love one another, I want you to love the way I love. I want you to love others and see others as more important than yourself. This is how people will know you are my disciples. So here's what happened. Over the course of 2,000 years, as we get together, the church was getting together, we know this is what happened because we see Paul addressing it in the very first years of the church. And as they began to worship and come together, someone would say, you know what, I don't think... Whoever's leading the study on the, the, who Jesus was in the Old Testament should be wearing jeans. He should be wearing slacks or khakis of some sort. And whenever we worship, we shouldn't be using the electricity. This is what the early church said, by the way. No electricity in our electric guitars. It's not how we worship God. And so what you had happen is the no pants, elect, no electricity people, they went over here and they started their own church to worship God the way they wanted to worship God. All the elements and all of the foundational fundamentals of who Christ was, those stayed intact. But they said, you know what? This is just how we see worshiping him. So this is how we're going to worship him. And then so we begin to split. Okay, not, not a big deal. More like-minded people over here and over here, that's fine. But then what happens after generations of this is the no pants, no electricity people and their children start to look at the pants electricity people and they start to say, you know what? I don't think they actually know who Jesus is or love God. They can't possibly with all of that electricity running through their worship and those jeans. You cannot love God and wear jeans. Just look at them. Now this is a silly example, but I'm telling you, this is how you get to over 200 denominations with more than a thousand plus subdenominations under those in just one country. And we haven't even been around that long. And then what happens, unfortunately, 
is we stop being of one mind about what the truth is. And we allow false teaching that tickles our ear and gets rid of the tension. It gets rid of the tension because living with the tension is hard. And so if you look at a lot of denominations, you'll see that the reason they become a denomination is they can classify and they'll have an answer for every part of worship, the message, what we believe, every single doctrine is, is cut and dry. This is it. This is the way it is, period. And this is how we will operate. And it alleviates some of that tension. But Jesus never asked us to. He actually asked us to live in it. You see, when you watch his ministry with his disciples for three years, he is messy, inconsistent, unfair, and confusing. At least he's unfair in the definition that I was taught fairness. Right? I've told you guys this before. On my birthday, my grandma would give the birthday kid a gift, and then my brother, she would secretly give him a gift as well. So everything would be fair. And then I got a gift on his birthday too because of fairness. And so we kind of grow up with this mindset. But then we see other believers who are doing well financially, have a job, their health is great, their kids are wonderful, their marriage is awesome, and we're struggling in all of that, and they only go to church once a week. And they go to the Pants Electricity Church. Can you believe that? How is, are they blessed by God and I'm not? It's unfair. He's confusing. In fact, he's purposely confusing. Do you think when he said, if you wish to be my disciples, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, that he did not know that that was going to be one of the most confusing things he's ever said? That people were going to walk away? No, he purposefully said it. He knew exactly what he was doing. He wanted to get rid of those who were just there for the sideshow, the miracles and the cool things and all the crowds. See, Jesus never intended to solve the tension. He wants us to live in it, and here's why he wants us to live in it. If you choose to embrace the tension of knowing God and serving God and loving others, it forces you to rely on his Holy Spirit to get you through. It forces you. You see, when someone comes to me and says, hey, pastor, what kind of music are we singing? Or what kind of message are you going to preach? Or what do we allow in the sanctuary? Or, or, or what's your viewpoint on this extra thing about church? I don't have a manual that I can go to and say, well, according to the non-denominational church manual, here's what you're allowed to do. As a worshiper, you can raise your arms three quarters. Half is fine, one quarter, but never full. Never full. It goes against the non-denominational creed. You are allowed to sway in worship, but should you hop, we're going to have to ask you to stop. See what I mean? There's no manual I get to go to. Now, I use some silly examples, but the truth of the matter is there's some real examples that would actually surprise you that you have a prejudice and a predisposition on. And just so you guys know, pre I say that word a lot. Predisposition literally just means you have a predisposed understanding. So you sat in your chair today 
because of a predisposed understanding that a chair will hold you. You didn't test your chair out before you sat in it, you just sat in it. So a predisposition is the filter by which I use to judge things in the church. And oftentimes it comes from our childhood, it comes from any experience that we've had in church, and whether we know it or not, we judge the things that are happening in our current church through that predisposition. Whether it's right or not, we do it. So we see Jesus, at times he's harsh. At times he's, it seems like to the young man who he says, let the dead bury the dead. If you're not gonna come with me now, then stay. Jeez, that's kinda harsh, Jesus. Let him go say goodbye to his dad. He's, he's gonna come and follow you. And then he seems unbelievably forgiving. The prostitute who's brought out in front of him, he heals the Roman guard's child. You see, the tension of not knowing WWJD, it's okay. What would Jesus do? I don't know, man. Honestly, sometimes he made a guy rub mud on his face. Other times he turned water into wine. I like that one a lot. I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know. But I do know that if I stay in the tension... And I, and, and, and I wake up every day and I rely on him and I say, God, I need you to help me with some important decisions today. There's a lot going on in our society right now. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of hurting people. I need to know how to act. I need to know how to show love. Not, not, not a cheesy, not a too afraid to face conflict kind of love. I need to know how to stay in the tension of who you are and still show love, God. Does this situation need truth or does it need me to have some grace right now? You see, the truth of the woman who was caught in adultery, again, the act of adultery, there couldn't be a more humiliating situation brought out most likely naked unless they decided to cover her in something before God to say, here, here she is, caught in the act. The law says, and he shows grace. According to the law, she should have been stoned but he shows grace. So God, how do I know when to show grace and when to toe the line with truth? Colossians 1, 15 through 17 says, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things are held together. <laughs> I'm going to close with this, John 1, 15, 17. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one that I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace. I've preached on this before, but just grace in place of grace. For the law was given through Moses and grace and truth have come through Jesus Christ. Over the next few weeks, we're going to talk about, and I'm going to make more clear, who we are as a church, where we stand on certain things, and our absolute rock-bottom purpose of being here, above any of the other things. It 
is going to cause tension. There is going to be some conflict. There may be some things we do that you don't like. There may be some things we allow that you don't like. But there isn't anything that I and the pastors and the elders of this church have not looked at through Scripture, have not received counsel on, and have not come into agreement on. And so you will have to judge for yourself and decide for yourself whether we're the kind of pants-wearing electrical church you want to be at or if you'd rather find a different one down the street. And I get that. But I've been called to stay in this tension. I wish I could just get rid of it. It'd be so much easier if we were just Lutheran. I could just follow the guidelines and do it exactly. And when you asked me, hey, can we do this? I'd say, nope. And when you said why, I'd say, go look right there. It says so. I'm not allowed to. Grace and truth, my friends. Embrace the tension this week. Grace and truth. Do not try to get rid of it. Ask God for help to get through it. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, what a heavy thing. We don't get to get out of the tension, God. (laughs) We don't get to just take a pass, have an excuse. You want us to stay here. Lord, you've kept me here for decades now. And I pray you never leave me in this. I pray your Holy Spirit would come down on this church, on the leaders of the church, and on those who call this place home, would your Holy Spirit come down. Without your Spirit, God, we are lost. Without the interpreter, the comforter, the advocate on our behalf, we are lost. So do not remove your Holy Spirit from me, as the song says. Do not remove your Spirit from me. Instead, Lord, we ask for a double portion to be poured out on this place. Teach us how to love in these trying times. Teach us where truth is needed and where grace is required. God, help us to show the world who you are by embracing the tension of grace and truth. In Jesus' name, amen.